tonight's message is entitled Overcoming Doubt and Skepticism. And I was thinking about this just a couple days ago, how some of the biggest decisions of my life have been influenced by skeptics, atheists. I lived in a couple of the most atheistic countries on the planet, and growing up, my very best friend was an atheist, and because of him, I gave my life to Jesus. Because of another, uh, actually because of different skeptics, different atheists, we started a film company, Anchor Point Films, And strangely enough, as I look at my life, some of the biggest decisions in my life were affected by skeptics and atheists. So when I put overcoming doubt and skepticism, I love atheists. And I'm not saying this, this is not about overcoming people. This is talking about overcoming this struggle in our own life. That's what we're really dealing with tonight. And before we begin, I just ask that you would bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to open your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here in a special way, and I pray that you would teach us. And I pray that Jesus would be seen, for it's in his name we pray, amen. There was a very strange group of people, maybe you could call them peculiar. These group of people lived at one point in a land called Egypt, they were slaves there. And the strange thing about these people was they had very distinct beliefs from the rest of most of the world. You see, while they were in Egypt, the Egyptians believed in different uh, gods, all kinds of different gods. You know, they had the god of the sun, the sun god. They had the river god. They had the frog god. They had the beetle god. They had all kinds of gods. And here were these strange group of people called Israelites or Hebrews after they left. And these these strange individuals had this peculiar belief that there was only, what? There was only one God. Now, this was unusual. Now, they moved from a place called Egypt, and they made their way over into what we now call Israel, Mesopotamia. And they moved into this area, and the people of the land there were similar to the Egyptians, not with the same gods, but those people believed in a multiplicity of gods. They believed in Baal, and they believed in El, and the other gods of Mesopotamia. And so you have these very strange people in ancient history. They didn't somehow evolve their religion out of the religions around them. They had a a distinct belief system. And one of their strange beliefs, when you look at these Israelites, is they looked off into the cosmos, and instead of having the typical beliefs, because the religions around them, when you look at the religions of the people around them, those people had perspectives of a universe that had somewhat always existed. The universe had always been there. And so here you have these Israelites. They had, you know, they had a different perspective also once again. The people around them said, you know, the universe has been here. Or the gods used pre-existing matter to kind of make and form what is around us today. The universe. So you kind of have an eternal universe with gods who uh, came about at some point, And these gods, you know, use the pre-existing matter. And then you have these, this strange perspective 
of these monotheists, those believers in one God, the Israelites, they had a different perspective. They believed that their one God didn't use pre-existing matter, but what he actually did was what? He spoke the world into existence. What a strange idea, huh? How, how distinct from all the people around them. But this is what they believe. This is what the Israelites believed. And then something happened. Then after that, Christianity took hold of this. And then later on, you have Islam takes hold of what the Bible had taught, you know, with the creation being, you know, made by one creator God. And what's interesting, though, is you look back through history... And you see that the general tenor of belief through Western society was the idea that you had an eternal universe with, with ever-existing matter. But the Jews, the Christians, and even the Muslims held to this idea that the ancient Hebrews had that God spoke the world into existence. What's fascinating is you come to the, to the turn of the, the 20th century and something began to happen. A shake-up took, took place inside the scientific world. They began to look at what Einstein taught, his theory of relativity. And as they were looking at this, they began to discover that actually the universe didn't seem to exist for eternity. That the universe actually had a beginning. Now you can imagine, this was hard for some of the scientists. This was hard for the, some of the scientists, because if, if the universe had a beginning, how did that happen? How did this actually happen? Now we're not going to go into why they believed it was so, but they, they finally came to the conclusion, look, the universe got started somehow, and one of the scientists we read here, that Paul Davies, who's a theoretical physicist, he said the universe is like a clock slowly winding down. And he asked the question, how did it get wound up in the first place? How did the universe begin in the first place? I mean, it's, it's cooling down, it's working its way down, it had more energy before, but that energy is going away, and sooner or later, the, ener the energy in the universe will cease to exist. So how did this all begin? This was actually a struggle to some of the atheists who said, I find it repugnant that the universe had a beginning. Because it begins to beg the question, how did it happen? How did it happen by natural processes? That's the question. And the answer to that, according to uh, magazines like Discover Magazine, I don't even know if you're going to be able to see it here on the screen, uh, but it says, this is taken from a secular periodical, the universe burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. How is that possible? Ask Alan Guth. His theory of inflation helps explain everything. That the universe burst into something from what? Absolutely nothing. Now let's think about this for a moment. Uh, now, some of the uh, scientists, you look at uh, the agnostic himself, Sir Fred Hoyle. Sir Fred Hoyle was not a believer in God. But when he looked at this idea that the universe came from absolutely nothing, you see, the, the idea is that there was a time when there was no space, matter, or energy. And then pff, there was an explosion from absolutely nothing, where time and space began. And so Fred Hoyle, the agnostic astronomer and mathematician, he says the universe is supposed to have begun at this particular time, from absolutely nothing. From where? 
The usual answer, he says, surely an unsatisfactory one, is from nothing. So this agnostic says, it is, I don't find that a satisfactory answer to say that everything came from absolutely nothing. And then at some point that nothing became something and that something began to think and here we are. That's a strange thought, isn't it? And so this is, this is what uh, some of these skeptics are, were struggling with. And we, we look at a man by the name of Anthony Flew, who is one of the foremost philosophical atheists of the 20th century. And Anthony Flew, I had an opportunity to read a book that he had written. He wrote a book called There Is No God. And then on the cover, it's crossed out no. And it says there is a God. Anthony Flew, this man who had written books on atheism, books on skepticism, this man went from saying there is no God, there's no logical reason to believe that there is a God, and as he got older, as he continued searching, searching for facts, searching for the evidence, something began to change in his mind. He began to say things are different than I originally perceived them to be. Things are a bit different. Notice what he says. Anthony Flew said, it seemed, speaking of the idea that the universe had a beginning, he said it seemed that the cosmologists were proving a scientific proof, providing a scientific proof of what St. Thomas Aquinas contended could not be proved philosophically, namely, that the universe had a beginning. Basically what he's saying is, it's interesting that the scientists began to prove what the Bible had said all along that there was a beginning to this universe, and then there actually was nothing at one point in time. The Bible says, obviously in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, what? Created the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the earth. That God spoke that before that time, there, were no, there was no pre-existing matter. There was absolutely nothing, and then God spoke the world into existence. And so here you have Anthony Flew saying, listen, it seems as if they're, they're beginning to teach exactly what the Bible had said all along. He goes on to say, this Anthony Flew says, now I believe that the universe was brought into existence... So this is a man who was one of the foremost philosophical atheists on the planet. And he says, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite, what? Intelligence. I believe that the universe, in, universe's intricate laws manifested what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originate in a divine source. Notice what he says, though, after that. He says, I stress that my discovery of the divine, of God, has proceeded on a purely natural level, without any reference to supernatural phenomena. It has been an exercise in what is traditionally called natural theology. So this man goes from one of the foremost philosophical atheists on the planet, and before he died, he said, listen, just from studying the science, and what he ended up saying is this, he said, listen, I have always based my belief on the idea that we should follow the evidence wherever it leads. He said this in this book. We should follow, we should be willing. If we are open to say, listen, even if this goes against everything I believe, if this is true, we ought to follow the evidence wherever it leads. And he said, and this perspective has never changed through my life. And this perspective, he said, has actually caused me to come to a belief in a creator God. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, it's one thing to believe there's a God, 
But there's more to believing in God than just, well, okay, there's this being, He exists, and you know, He start, started the spark, and here we are, and He does His thing, we do he, uh, you know, we do ours, He does His thing, you understand? Uh, now, it's interesting, though, because uh, the greatest, the most popular atheist on the planet today, who do you think would probably be the most popular atheist on the planet today? You tell me. Dawkins, right? I mean, it was almost unanimous, right? This man, he, he fights with fervor against religion, against Christianity. It doesn't really matter what religion, but he fights with fervor against religion. And uh, some time ago, he was in a debate with a man named John Lennox. And John Lennox, I'm not, I'm not a real believer in debates. I think it typically just sets people more in their perspective, and you just become more staunch and angry. But nevertheless, he was in a debate with a man by the name of John Lennox. And John Lennox is this teddy bear of an old Brit. He's just an old British man and very kind. He wasn't fighting and hammering on Dawkins, but they were just kind of discussing in, in a debate together. And as they were debating, debating together, John Lennox asked a question that I think is kind of surprising. And it almost seems like, why would you ask that in a debate? It wasn't like, a, I'm going to prove something to you. He just asked Dawkins a simple question. So he asked the greatest skeptic on the planet, let me ask you. He said, do you ever feel the desire to worship? Isn't that a weird question? What a weird question to ask the biggest skeptic on the planet. You could ask him anything and you ask him, do you ever feel the desire to worship? Notice with me what Dawkins' response was. Richard Dawkins, debating John Lennox, said, there it is. He said, I think that when you consider, this is, this is Richard Dawkins, I think that when you consider the beauty of the world, and you wonder how it came to be what it is, you're naturally overwhelmed with a with a feeling of awe, a feeling of admiration. And you almost feel a desire to what? Worship something. Notice what he says, I feel this. I recognize that other scientists such as Carl Sagan feel this. Einstein felt it. He goes on to say, we, all of us share a kind of religious reverence for the beauties of the universe, for the complexities of life, for the sheer magnitude of the cosmos, the sheer magnitude of geological time. When Richard Dawkins was asked, do you ever feel the need to worship, to maybe go out and call out after your creator? And this is a man, see, you've got to understand that Richard Dawkins is a man that thinks big questions. See, we can live a life where we are so busy with our iPhones, that we are so busy with Facebook, and these things aren't bad in and of themselves, but we can be so busy with these things that we don't think about the bigger questions of life. Richard Dawkins actually thinks about the bigger questions of life. He looks at the complexity of, of cells. He looks at the you know, sheer magnitude of the universe. He thinks about time. And as he thinks about these things, he says, the greatest skeptic on the planet says, when he thinks about those times, his heart, or those things, his heart actually cries out and he wants to worship something. Is that not interesting? Do you know the Bible tells us that? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the Creator, that through the creation, we can see that there is a God. We can see that there is a God. So Richard Dawkins basically says, you know, I sense that. I, I have this desire to worship. I, I feel it inside of me. But then he basically went on to say something like, but then I remember the, the theory of evolution. I just squash it. I just squash the desire. Very interesting to me. 
Very interesting that this man had this desire. He had this desire to worship something inside of him. We have this great philosophical atheist who first says, listen, now I believe there is a God. I believe there's a God based upon science. And then we have someone like Dawkins who says, I sense in my heart of hearts the need to worship God. But you know, the Bible says in Psalms chapter 34, in verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Blessed is the man that trusts in Him. Now, before we talk about the first part, the last part says that blessed is the man that trusts in Him. The word blessed means, what does it mean? Do you know? It means to be happy. The Bible actually says that when you trust in God, it brings happiness into your life. That it actually brings joy, it brings peace, it brings happiness into your life. This is something that we are told. But it says here, it says, first, it says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now imagine with me for a moment. Imagine I, I just come back from some tropical island. And you're my friend. And I come back and I have this bunch of fruit. And it's a bunch of fruit that you've never had, I've never had until I went to this amazing tropical island. And I say, this fruit is absolutely amazing. You've got to try this. This is the best fruit I have ever had. I mean, you can't imagine. It is, it is so tasty. It is so juicy that when you, when you taste it, I mean, it is just it's in a, an experience you've never had before. And then you say to me, but Chad, I have apples. And I say, yeah, yeah, apples are great. No problem. You can have your apples, but you've got to try this. And you say, yeah, but Chad, I also, I have grapes also. And I say, yeah, yeah, you, you can have the grapes. Continue. No problem. But listen, try this. You've got to try this. It's absolutely amazing. It's the best fruit I've ever had. Now, would you know before you tasted it, yes or no? The only way for you to discover, is it actually what I am claiming is to what? Taste and see. It's interesting that the God of the Bible says it's much more than just just believe. But God actually wants us to experience Him. And it's interesting that every human, I believe, has the opportunity to experience Him. Even Richard Dawkins, who is fighting tooth and nail to stay away from the God of the universe. But God is still speaking to His soul. Speaking to the, His inmost heart. And I remember times in my life when I was not following God. And I remember lying in bed at night, and uh, if I could even remember going to bed, but for sure if I woke up in the morning, I was empty. I was not fulfilled. I was living a life of, of craziness, and, and I wasn't happy with it. I, I had some fun for the time, and then I would wake up and I would be empty. And I, I was fighting. I was fighting with this, this battle with God, but didn't even really think about it. I didn't even think about it that way, but that's what was taking place. So here I was in this struggle, and God was saying, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But the trouble is we think, yeah, maybe I should, maybe I should follow God. But sometimes we have all these questions. We have all these questions like, well, can we really trust? I mean, people talk about the Bible. They talk about all different kinds of things. And can we really even trust in the Bible? I don't know. How do I know? Maybe the books have been changed. Maybe it's not trustworthy. And maybe you've heard arguments like this one. You know the Bible. Yeah, it has some nice stories. It's nice literature. It's wonderful literature. Great, great literature to read something, you know, some, you know, moral fiber in there. Great, wonderful. But, you know, you know the books, you can't trust them. I mean, think about it. These books were written 
thousands of years ago, especially, you know, the Old Testament, even, even uh, you know, further than 2,000 years ago, and these books you recognize surely would have been changed over time because you must have played the telephone game before, right? Anybody ever played the telephone game before, yes or no? All right, 12 of you. Pretty good. Uh, the rest of you, maybe I could explain it to you, right? I think most of us know it works like this. I come up to the fella in the front row and I say, all right, I'm going to whisper something into your ear and then you're going to whisper it to the young lady next to you and the young, young lady there and, and we're going to loop all the way the, around the room. We're going to go to the back. We're going to come up and we're going to come up to this young lady in the very front and I'm going to say something like this. It is absolutely freezing in Southern California. And then it goes around the room and it comes down to this young lady here and I say, now what did I say to this fellow in the front row? And she says something like, purple bunnies look nice in the sun. <laughs> Is that true? Yes or no? Is that how the game works? It always works like that, doesn't it? Have you ever had it where they said the same thing at the end? No, it never happens. I don't know. It's like a miracle. I mean, how does that happen so terribly every single time? Now, but think about this. And the idea is, look, this book that you claim is an inspired, the inspired word of God, surely after thousands of years, the very same thing would have happened. And that sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? It sounds kind of convincing. I mean, it's logical, but let's think this through. This sounded like a, an almost unbreakable argument until a little time after the year 1947. Something very interesting happened. There was a young Muslim boy by the name of Mohammed Ed-Dib. And this young boy was a goat herder in an area called Qumran. And as he was going around, as he was there in the desert, he was going along with his sheep, and there's, or his goats rather, and there's only so many things to do when you're herding goats, right? And so he picks up something like a rock and he wings it into a cave. He throws it into a cave. And to his surprise, he hears, Ksh! he hears something shatter, like pottery. So young Mohammed goes into the cave, this young Muslim boy, he goes into the cave and he discovers a scroll. Actually, he discovered at least a couple in that cave. He brought them out and through a series of events, what ended up happening was this was the discovery or the beginning of the discovery of what came to be known as the Dead Sea what? Scrolls. Now here was a very interesting point, a turning point in history. Now we could kind of test the Old Testament at least. Now because in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls they found every single book, portions anyway, of every single book from the Old Testament excluding the book of Esther. Every single, portions of every single book in the Old Testament were discovered except the book of Esther. And so now we could find out how tainted the Bible had become over the course of at least 2,000 years because the oldest copies we had of the Old Testament at that point were about 1,000 years old. And so here were, here were copies that were another 1,000 years older than that. At least, you know, even more so. They were, they roughly, I mean, they actually range from a number of dates, something like, uh, you know, 150 to 50 BC and some even in, into the maybe AD. And this picture we have, now we could find out what happened to these books. Have they been changed? Have they been transformed so that the things that we read are totally different from the things that were originally intended by the original authors? So we found these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so now the question comes to you and to me, and the question is, can we trust the text? Can these texts be trusted? 
Notice what we read here. It says, as Notre Dame professor Eugene Ulrich, chief editor of the Qumran biblical text for the Oxford Discoveries in the Judean Desert series observed, the scrolls have been shown that our traditional Bible has been amazingly accurately preserved for over what? 2,000 years. Meaning that basically what you, you see is the mistakes that they find, most of them are spelling mistakes. They're mostly spelling mistakes. A few word changes here and there, but virtually nothing changes the actual meaning of the text. Virtually nothing. So you have this message that has come down to us today. And if these are over 2,000 years old, that means these were the texts that were being used in the time of who? Jesus. So when Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, according to scriptures in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus went into the synagogue, he stood up to read and he opened up, he opened up the scroll. Does anybody remember what book he read from there in the synagogue? Isaiah. And guess what? What scroll is the most well-preserved of any of the scrolls they discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls? The book of Isaiah, the great Isaiah scroll. And so now they could compare now they could compare, and we can discover that when we look at the beautiful passage of something like Isaiah 53, and we're going to talk more about that in another night, when we look at that, we are looking at the same message. The same message that was 2,000 plus years ago is the same message that you are creasing and opening up today when you read your Bible. Friends, I can tell you this. I have found from personal experience that we can trust the Word of God. What it says is true. God has given us these things. He has given us His Word. But many people have struggled. They have struggled with skepticism and doubt because there are all kinds of opinions out there. There are man's ideas. There was a man by the name of Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. This man uh, had struggled with doubts. He actually came to the conclusion that you could not trust uh, the, the Bible. Especially, you know, he, he went into archaeology and he figured it would just be wrong historically and geographically that surely these guys were just full of it. They didn't even know what they were writing. And this is the perspective he went into or he came to as he began to be an archaeologist. But after actually testing what the Bible said uh, alongside what archaeology had discovered, notice what he says. And he goes specifically to the book of Luke. Sorry, the... The screen looks a little funky there, but notice what it says. It says Luke, speaking of the, book, the book of Luke, he says Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author Luke should be placed along with the very greatest of what? Historians. He said, listen, I came to the Bible with a skeptical viewpoint, but actually, actually after testing it myself, my mind has been changed. I see things differently now. Now I actually recognize that I can trust this book. Friends, we can see, if you're willing to put it to the test, God gives enough evidence. And I'll tell you this, there's always enough evidence to hang your doubt upon, doubts upon if you want to doubt. There's always enough room. There, I mean, you could doubt anything. You could doubt that your parents had you, right? If your parents had you, you could come up with all kinds of excuses why that's not true, right? But the reality is God gives enough evidence if we're willing to look for it. If we're willing to look for it, God is willing to give us enough evidence. And you know, back to this idea. The idea for a long time was basically that the universe was just eternal, so there's no need for a God. And then the Bible comes along in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11. 
And you may remember those very special words, very popular words in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that says, they say, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, catch this with me for a moment. Notice those words right there. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, you tell me, is the word faith a scientific or a religious word? It's a religious word. So if it's a religious word, do you think it would be okay to take a religious definition for it? Yes or no? I mean, that would just make sense. So that faith is a religious word. The definition the Bible gives to it is faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not what? Seen. So one aspect of faith is believing in something you have never what? Seen. Have any of you ever seen God? Yes or no? So if you believe in him, you have faith, okay? Now, let me ask you a question. Did anyone see the Big Bang, yes or no? So if someone believed it, they would believe it based upon faith. You see that? See, I'm not putting anybody down, not, not by any stretch of the imagination. But do you realize that if you believe in something you have never seen, according to the Bible, the religious word of faith means to believe in something, to believe you even have evidence you say, no, 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 but I think I have evidence why this happened. But it says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So if you even believe you have evidence for something you've never seen, that is still, by definition, what? That's faith. And the reality is, is that every human being has been given, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 4, every human being has been given a measure of faith. We all have it. We all have it. But in the end, where will we, where will we put our faith? Now, the Bible even tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, it says, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed, meaning the universe was framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Get the picture. The Bible actually tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, if you believe in creation, you believe it based upon what? Faith. You believe it, yes, the Word of God, and you believe it based upon faith. And then it goes on to say, it says, the things that are seen, the things that you see, were made of things that you have never seen, which is faith, right? Nobody saw God create the world. But then it goes on to even tell us in verse 6, it tells us, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Meaning, if you come to God, you must believe he exists. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, the text says. So the Bible tells us that we are to believe in God. If we believe in God, we are believe, believing by faith. And what it says simply is this. It says, without faith, it's impossible to, believe, to, to please God. Without faith, you can't actually uh, please God, but you can't actually find spiritual victories in your life without true faith. Faith in the Bible is not a negative word. Every human has faith. They just don't recognize it yet. Every human has faith in something, believing in something they have not seen. And the reality is, is God's word is much more than just true. If it were just true, well, whatever, right? A lot of things are true, but they don't affect your life, right? You don't really care about a lot of things because they don't affect you. But the fact is the word of God, Jesus himself, the one who is called the word of God, does much more than just, you know, has truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is much more than just, you know, a fact. Now, to the disciples, maybe you've heard someone say, but maybe, maybe the, maybe the disciples just lied about the whole thing, the resurrection. Maybe they were following Jesus. And they got, you know, they felt really bad that their so-called Messiah got 
killed. So they, uh, you know, dug his body out of the tomb and shoved him in a tomb somewhere else and, uh, and yelled, ha ha, he, he rose again, he rose again, right? Well, let's think this through. If they did that, they knew it was a lie. Is that true? They would be liars. They lied about the resurrection of Jesus, and they knew it. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. If you were going to start, let's, let's say you were going to start a religion. If I were going to start a religion, I would be king of that religion. Does that make sense? I would have everything I wanted, money, grand houses. Does that make sense? You're thinking, this guy's a real jerk. But wouldn't you do the same if you were going to start a religion? Right? You would want something great for yourself. What do most religionists do as they start a religion? They get followers. These cult leaders get people to follow them. They have a bunch of wives. They have all these things, right? But think about this. What, what benefit did the disciples get from what did they get out of lying if it was a lie? Notice what happened through their lives. Get an idea. Peter, as a result of believing this or teaching this, Peter was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was killed with a sword. This is what history tells us anyway. John died of a natural death. He's the only one of the 11 that died naturally. But he was tortured himself, thrown in, history says, a boiling vat of oil. James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the disciples, was crucified. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death. Then we go on to discover Thomas was killed with a spirit thrust. Bartholomew was crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed with the sword. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, but they, history says this. Now, tradition says this, but think about this. These guys, if they knew Jesus did not, die, or did not rise again, they knew it. Now, do you think that at least one of them, as they were going to their death, would have been, you know, they said, listen, are you willing to recant your beliefs in, in this Messiah that you claim raised from the dead? Don't you think one of them would say, uh, yeah, you know, we kind of made that up, you know. We made it up because we wanted to start some great religion. Do you think every single one of them would be willing to sacrifice their life for a lie, yes or no? Let me ask you a question. Have people died for lies in that past of Earth's history, yes or no? Absolutely they have. But when they died for lies, generally they actually what? They believed those lies. If, if these guys knew that Jesus had not risen from the dead because they had stolen his body away, guess what? At least some of them, I mean, maybe one of them would have died just because he wanted to save face, but all, are, you know, are 10 out of the 11 all die for, for one they know never actually rose from the dead? These men believed it with all their heart because guess what? They met him after the resurrection. They didn't believe that he rose from the dead initially. They said, no way, that's ridiculous. When the woman came to him, when the woman came to them, they didn't say, oh, great, oh, yeah, Mary, that, oh, sure, Mary Magdalene, that makes much sense that he rose from the, yeah, right, right? But then actually Jesus appeared to them and said, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And even Thomas, right, he said, there's no way unless I, unless I put my hand, my fingers into his hands and thrust my hand in his, into his side, I will not believe. And he wouldn't believe it. And then the Messiah appeared to him. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appears to them. And as he appears to them, what happens? He, does, he doesn't need to stick his hand in there anymore. He just falls down and says, my Lord and my God. They believed it with their whole hearts. With every bit of their being, they believed this. We look at Peter. Peter, now think about this man. Peter actually came to the point where he was going to be crucified for his Lord, for Jesus Christ, for the testimony of Jesus. And as he goes to his crucifixion, I mean, imagine he gets the opportunity, he knows Jesus didn't res resurrect, what happened? 
He would, he would totally say, listen, I, it really didn't happen. I'm sorry. I, I, we made it up. It's not true. But you know what he did? He said, I am not afraid to die like my Lord. But he said, it's too shameful for me to be crucified as my Savior. Would you please crucify me? What? Upside down. Upside down. Does this sound like a man who's afraid to die? Why do you think these guys were all willing to die? Because they knew their resurrected Lord had risen from the dead. And because He rose from the dead, they knew that someday when He come and came again in the clouds of heaven, that they too would be resurrected and death was nothing but a sleep. They knew this was the future for them. We look down to the man by the name of the Apostle Saul. Actually, we call him Apostle what? We call him Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul was a fascinating man. He speaks of himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. He says, For you heard my manner of life when I was in Judaism, that I persecuted the church of God with surpassing zeal and ravaged it. He says, listen, I used to kill Christians. That was my job. That's what I did. I hated Christianity. He says, And I progressed in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my race, being much more zealous of the traditions of my fathers. He said, I love Judaism. I loved our faith. I wanted nothing to do with this new sect called Christianity, these Christians, the way. I wanted nothing to do with them. And you know, uh, two professors from Oxford University, Lord Littleton and Gilbert West, set out to disprove portions of Scripture. Uh, Lord Littleton set out to prove that Saul never converted to Christianity. Gilbert West set to prove the fallacy of the resurrection. And so they went to study. They went to study to prove that these things never happened, that Paul never converted to Christianity or Saul never converted to Christianity and Jesus never rose from the dead. And as they sought with all their might to prove these things wrong, both of these men came to the opposite conclusions. They actually discovered that Paul was converted. That Jesus did rise from the best evidence that Jesus did actually rise from the grave. And Lord Littleton said the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. Now, why would he say that? Think about Paul. This guy, his job was persecuting the Christians, killing them, and, and wanting nothing to do with actually seeking them out and then killing them. And he was on that way on the Damascus road. And as he was on that road to persecute the Christians, he, he saw a light. And he heard this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he discovered that Jesus himself was talking to him. And he said, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the bricks. Why are you doing this? Saul's life was changed. And you know what the strange thing is? Do you know, do you remember what happened when, when Saul, he went blind for a bit and when he received his sight again, at, during this time period, he was told by Jesus that you are going to have to suffer many things for my sake. Do you remember what kind of things happened in Saul's life? Saul, after he gave his life to Jesus Christ, after he came face to face with the resurrected Lord, this man who hated Christianity, he hated Jesus himself. But the reality is, after he came face to face with Jesus, what happened? He was willing to be stoned multiple times for Jesus Christ. He was beaten with rods. And I don't know if you know, but typically when you're stoned, it's a, it's a one-time experience, right? You only get to experience that once in life, right? After that, you've had enough. 
But the reality is he actually made it through miraculously. God, you know, they thought he was dead. They left him for dead, but he, he came back up. And, and you know what he did? After being, after being stoned in one city, he left that city. And later, you know what he did? He went back and preached there again. Can you imagine? Do you think this guy believed in what he was preaching? He wasn't getting anything out of it from a worldly standpoint, except for he was believing that the people who believed this message would receive eternal life. That's what they believed. And that's why they sacrificed their life for the Savior Jesus Christ. The one they knew had risen from the grave. These men overcame in the power of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives power to us to overcome. These men overcame their doubts and skepticism. Lord Littleton was skeptical, but as he studied, he saw, wow, there are answers to my questions in the Bible. The apostles who thought, no way, he didn't rise from the grave. That's ridiculous. These men, as they, as they were skeptics, they finally, when they met the resurrected Lord, they lost their skepticism. They were changed. They overcame. They found victory. They saw that, listen, Jesus is all he claimed to be. And he's much more than just a scientific fact. He's not really a scientific fact. He is the Lord of all creation. Jesus does something much more powerful than just shows us accurate things. Jesus changes lives. Mark Finley shares a story of a man by the name of Bucky. Bucky was a man who came to his evangelistic meetings, and Bucky had been in a, um, he was in a biker gang. He was one of those guys who loved to take a bottle and smash it and just stick it in somebody's face on the weekend, you know? He was a rough guy. And Bucky came to the evangelistic meetings, and as he heard the word of God, there was something powerful about it. Not just factual, but actually life-changing about, yes, it was true, but it changed his heart. And his heart was so changed that he gave his life to Jesus at these meetings. And after giving his life to Jesus at those meetings, something happened. There was this, this little man, you know, kind of maybe a businessman or, a, you know, a kind of an intelligent guy with glasses or whatever. And he came and he was angry at Mark Finley. And so he came up to this preacher and, and he was angry with him. And he started sticking his finger in his face. And Bucky was standing off to the side. And Mark Finley said, uh, Bucky, he turned to Bucky and he said, Bucky, would you take care of this guy? And the guy looked and he sees big old Bucky there and he says, what, what do you mean? He starts getting a little nervous, right? I mean, who wouldn't? And the guy walks up to Bucky and he says, listen, mister. He said, if this would have been a few days ago and you would have stuck your finger in my friend's face like that, I would have taken you out back and had my way with you. He said, you better be happy there's a God because now all I want to do is hug you. And he just reached out and he just grabbed the guy. There's something much more powerful than just the facts of the Bible. The power in the Word of God is the changing power. It's something that's changed my life. I had no interest in the Bible. But as I began to open its pages and didn't even understand them in the beginning, but as they began to open up, they began to change my life. There's power in the Word of God, friends. And I want to challenge you to be willing to open it up for yourself. The living Word of God, the Word that created all things. There was a time when there was nothing but we're here today. Friends, and I want to challenge you to be in that word. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. Lord, I thank you that you give us enough evidence to base our faith upon, for faith is believing in something we've never seen. But you give evidence. 
But Father, as we look at more evidence and as we look at finding victory and we, we see how our mind can be changed, that you can give us victory over our temptations, over our habits, over our sins, over the trials and struggles that we have, over tribulation. Father, I pray that you would unite us with yourself, that your spirit would fill us, and that as we read your word, our minds would be transformed. Lord, we commit our lives to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.